What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out unconsciously or subconsciously in your mind and in the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, get a control of your thought process, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. In last week's episode, I talked about the critical importance of mindset and your mental game and how you basically sort of engage yourself and your behaviors and particularly when you're starting out how you come about building your your capital up and building money and savings so that you can actually put a deposit down on a property at some point in the future a lot of the time it's a very um it's a very large amount that you have to raise and this is often quite a intimidating amount of money that you need to kind of somehow get a hold of and so how you go about that it's all up in the mind it's how resourceful you are it's how you know much of a sacrifice you're prepared to make because anything worthwhile doing takes sacrifice and uh, and hard work and all that kind of stuff so if you want to be a property investor you've got to put in those couple of hard years where you're saving 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 side hustle whatever it is you've got to figure out a way to accumulate a cash a pot of cash that can go into a deal and i'm going to be going into different ways of doing that well not doing the the raising of cash but how you can invest it once you're in that um in that point and uh, your lifestyle costs getting a control of all that the, the, the key is patience and discipline. If you're able to get a control of your lifestyle, if you're able to kind of keep it under a certain level, you'll find that you accumulate cash much quicker and then profits and things like that that you make from each deal can roll into the next deal rather than spending it as soon as you've got it. And I've gone through all that kind of stuff in the past and I probably blew quite a lot of money that I could have actually just put aside and it would have kept me doing more and more projects. Um, so... Just a little update. This week has been super, super busy. It's um, it's because the phased reopening of um, after COVID-19, we have an awful lot of people starting to kind of plan to reopen their offices. So I'm here in East Point Business Park and um, there's normally eight or nine thousand people working in here. And it is uh, we're at this stage now where at the moment I would say there's about one percent of the normal population here in the park. There's so few people. There's like the place is completely empty. But the 29th of June, which is just next week, there's talk about people starting to come back. And there is um, so there seems to be a sort of a gentle role um, towards building up the office occupation. And I see that we have um, the 20th of July is another date for the next phase when more people will be back in. But from what I can tell, the big companies, they're talking about, you know, 30% reoccupation of their buildings. And so it's a challenge for all of the businesses. For the landlord, for us, I mean, we have long-term leases and stuff. So I'm going to get into some of these specifics later on. Um, And in this, I mean, obviously I'm working in a big business park with a lot of commercial leases, but I'm going to be talking about residential property. I'm going to be talking about commercial property. I'm going to be talking about land development, all of the things that you might get going uh, into. Update uh, behind the facade community, my Facebook group, which I recommend anybody who wants to kind of get deeper into this joins. Um, it's it's open to anyone. Just, you know, you sign up there and you'll have access to these kind of live videos and access to me in terms of advice and stuff. Um, it's growing pretty rapidly. We're now at 114 members as of this very moment. And um, also my YouTube channel that I put a lot of this content out on. In fact, 
every bit of content I produce, I put back out on my YouTube channel, Prop Tech TV. That's all one word. And if you guys are interested in following that rather than the Facebook group, just go over to the YouTube channel, Prop Tech TV, and subscribe and uh, hit the notification bell. And that way you'll get all of the latest details from me. So listen, I'm under a lot of time pressure today with this stuff going on in the park. And so I'm just going to get straight into it, creating opportunities and adding value. And um, this is really, I, I got a couple of questions um, from a lot of different people over the last couple of days. They were asking me, Gavin, how do I get started? Uh, one particular chap um, actually has saved up quite a bit of money. But he's at that point where he doesn't know what to spend it on now. Should he invest? He really wants to be a property investor, but he's nervous of making a mistake. And one of the things that I would suggest to anybody in that situation is to actually you know, embrace that nervousness because so many people, what they do is they um, they rush into it because they're they're mad keen to become an investor and they, they, they drop the ball and they they screw up on their first deal and that's it, you're out of the game. You'll it'll take it might it might have taken you a couple of years to save up your first deposit. And if you blow that, then it, you're you're gonna probably be pretty deflated and it's gonna be very hard to kind of start that whole process again. So you wanna get the first one right, but that is actually one of the best positions to be in because as you get more confident and as you grow in um, in your experience you start to take shortcuts you start to believe that you know everything that you know the same rules don't apply any longer that and i've suffered that that's part of what i talk about when i talk about the three e's the ego the emotion and the economy those three things can sink you at any time and you've got to be really cognizant of them. And what I've found in the past was that my ego was probably the biggest thing is that I believed because I'd had a number of years of successful investment that I could do no wrong. And I found that um, I piled into one or two deals that just cost me so much money. And it was I didn't do the due diligence. I didn't spend time looking at the deal in more detail. And it was primarily because I just felt like I knew it all. And so you've got to just make sure that you approach this um, with care and take a lot of caution and make sure you do your analysis pretty carefully. And that confidence, you'll build up that confidence quickly. But again, it's just always bear in mind that things can change quickly. Coronavirus came out of nowhere. Nobody saw this coming. And so we're all now on the back foot. And that is the kind of thing you just need to be careful when you're doing any kind of a deal that you bear in mind that the economy could shift in some direction that could be upwards it could be downwards and you need to know what you're thinking about in that regard and um, so getting into the actual specifics i go, i always start out with a kind of an, a long-term outlook i i talk about the four or sorry i talk about the six ors in real estate and the first three are kind of the inner game going on in your head and by that i i mean the roadmap the uh, the resilience that you need and the restraint and restraint i've talked about patience and discipline i've talked about the fact that you need to kind of hold yourself back don't rush into deals all that that's restraint resilience is going to be needed because of the fact that this is a cyclical game no matter how successful you are no matter how well you've invested in the past the economy at some point will shift and when it does it's going to go into a negative kind of a, a period and that could be a couple of years and there's nothing you can do about it. And there's no way, and most people, they can't avoid it either. So don't think that you're smarter than everyone else and that you'll sell before the market falls. 
the bottom line is most people get caught out totally unexpected. And so you need to build resilience and you need to accept that, okay, whatever my portfolio is worth today, the chances are it'll be worth less in a couple of months or a year or two's time when we go into that downward cycle. But that's okay. That's I've got this long term view of the market. I'm going to make sure that I am prepared for that mentally and I'm not kind of, you know, in the same way the stock market rises and falls, you know, you don't if you stay for the long term, you win long term. If you're in and out trying to make a profit all the time trading, that's where you get burned. And so you just need to be careful about that. Um, what when I when I talk about the roadmap, I talk about the long term outlook. You've got to kind of figure out what area of the market you want to focus on and you've got to figure out what is your theory on the market. Now, you can do that by, you know, looking at uh, researching lots of different uh, estate agents and all of this kind of stuff. Um, they come out with reports. They make suggestions that certain areas are coming up and, and whatever. A lot of this stuff, though, you got to take with a pinch of salt because there is a certain amount of um, those guys are, you know, they, they make a living out of this business. So they're not going to tell you, oh, it's a terrible time to invest. Keep your money at home because that's going to impact. They won't be earning any anything when they from commissions. So you just got to take it. you got to get a broad view. So if I were you, I would be monitoring, you know, uh, economic outlook. I'd be monitoring the, the estate agents, the various estate agents reports. There's ones that are kind of national estate agents that would have a wider view. They'd be in all sorts of areas. And then you'll have your local guys. And I'm going to assume every different market. Uh, I mean, this is a global podcast. I have guys in Kuwait. I have guys in South Africa. I've got guys in the US and then Ireland here and then the UK. There's so many people looking at this from so many areas. I don't get like to get into the specifics. I like to talk much more general and the principles. And, um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So you have your theory on the market. You have an idea of what it is that you want to achieve and you have a and you have to have some sort of an outlook. Is the market rising or is it falling? That's the first thing you need to kind of figure out. And in my view at the moment, um, COVID-19 is going to drive the market down. You've got the economy is going to be, you know, suffering. You've got a huge amount of people with job losses and all that. So for the next few months, I'm expecting the market to be under pressure. I don't think you should be buying today. That is my personal view. You can make your own mind up on that. But I, I think that the market will continue to fall. And I would say six months to 12 months from now will be a good time to start looking around for prices because I think there'll be distressed people trying to sell. Banks will start foreclosing on people and putting you know properties out for sale. And that's a good time to be buying. So if you're in that saving stage, hang on to your money, uh, keep on growing it and then get ready for the opportunity. If you can join forces with other people, that is even better because you can make your money go further. If you have a couple of friends that, you know, if you all save up a certain amount of money, you can your, your money will go further. Obviously, you've also got to think about which sectors are going to improve quicker. I mean, if you look at COVID-19 now, we've got a, you know, your residential property has been impacted because so many people are, are unemployed. But we already, so many markets, there's a shortage of residential property. So that will probably bounce back quickly. Then you've also got the likes of, say, logistics and warehousing. Now, that has not suffered any downturn at all because everyone has moved to a digital model where they're delivering stuff online. And so if anything, warehousing and logistics is already going up and is probably going to continue to improve. And that is an area that I would personally be in, um, looking at carefully because I actually do think logistics is something that's going to grow in the future. Anybody who has a traditional business at the, at the moment 
is going to be thinking, I need to get into the digital age. I need to go and move to a digital model where I have an online store and all of that. And that means these guys are going to need to have storage space and warehousing. And then even on a, on a larger scale, all of the safety equipment, the PPE that we've all been hearing so much about over the last few months, that is going to be super important because this coronavirus, I don't think we're going to have a vaccine overnight. I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. And therefore, you're going to have doctors, nurses, hospitals, all of those people are going to have to build up large supplies. And I think the national supply chain and the national stockpiles are going to be improved. And I think what you're going to have is a situation where logistics becomes very much in demand because you're going to have people that have decided, you know what, I'm too reliant on China for my deliveries. I need to have a certain amount here all the time because when China gets its second wave, which it seems like it's happening at the moment in Beijing, they could lock down again and suddenly you'll find that shipments are stopped. And once that happens, then what are you going to do? So I'm of the view that you're going to find logistics. That's going to be an area that um, improves. And there could be things like even companies like Amazon, they could well need to have logistics centers all over the country, as opposed to one large one. They'll probably need to have fulfillment centers all over the place. So this is stuff that, you, you know, you need to start thinking about. Are you in residential? Are you in commercial? Are you thinking about land? All of these are available and all of these are opportunities that you can look at. But I think you should kind of look at what your skills are, what your knowledge is, what your network is like and the kind of funding that you have available to you because all of that impacts it. So geographic areas, another thing, uh, when in 2008, when it struck, the whole country here in Ireland went down, pretty much the world went down, but certain markets bounced back quite quickly. And I know that, you know, places like London, they actually, they suffered a downturn, but within a year, the market was starting to fire up again. Dublin took like years to get back to its feet. America, uh, you know, parts of America immediately kind of bounced back like New York City after a year or so. But there are other parts, more rural parts that take a while to kind of come back. And it's the same across the board. So you've got to have a look at sectors that you think will change, whether it's residential, logistics. Everyone is scared of retail at the moment. And so that is definitely a sector you need to be careful of. Hotel food and beverage that is you know the hospitality sector has been devastated by uh, coronavirus so that's another thing that i expect you'll see distressed prices and that might be an opportunity to buy something at a good price but you run the risk of it possibly not um, having an income from that if there's a second lockdown but then possibly repurposing of that uh, could be another option for you the next thing is the class of property you might have, you know, large scale, small scale. Sometimes it's easy for um, price ranges to bounce back. So a, a one bedroom apartment might not do as well as a two or three bedroom apartment because families are downsizing from a house into something that is smaller, but they still need to have a couple of bedrooms. You might find that the one bedroom apartment is not going very well or the two bedroom isn't doing well and the one bedroom is. So you just need to review all of these things and start to build up a kind of a theory in your mind as to what you think the market is going to possibly do over the next couple of years and then try to specialize in that area. And as I mentioned, 
having your knowledge and your skills and all of that. By by that, I mean, like in my case, I was an architect. So for me, refurbishing property made a lot of sense because I could bring my skills as an architect into play. If I was a contractor or if I had experience on building sites and stuff, I might have gone a different road. I might have actually gotten into house building. And uh, I actually ended up doing uh, refurbishment jobs and things like that. And I would hire builders, but I could have saved a lot of money if I was actually the builder. So it de- it's down to your skills and it's down to your network. If you have a lot of friends that are, say, tradesmen, that are electricians, plumbers, all that, that's a very, very handy network to have for the refurbishment business because you can go and buy a place and instead of having to pay market prices, you might say to the guys, look, I'm going to do all the work on the legal and all the work with the architect. You go and do all the installation and you do and you kind of join forces together and you can make it all work for each other. Getting into the specifics then, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial, whether it's a conversion from one to the other or whether it's land, those are the specifics. And what I'm going to be talking about, first of all, is sort of passive investment. So residential. A lot of people will just be saying, "Okay, I have a save money saved up and I want to buy something. And if you're if you have a full time job that it doesn't give you a whole lot of time, well, then probably passive investing is where you need to be looking at. And that's not a very exciting thing to do. And your returns are going to be fairly limited uh, in, 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 in so far as if you go and buy a place you know, a two bedroom apartment and it's new and the builder has just handed it over, there will be a slow growth of the of the of the capital value there, which is good. And you'll be happy to have that over time. But there's other people that are more sort of aggressive and they'd say, no, you know what, I want to do this place up and I want to add a lot of value and I want to sell it and then I want to kind of make a profit and I want to roll that into the next deal. So you got to decide whether you're passive or active. If you're active, it's much more hands on. And you need to be thinking about that because whether you have the time or not, I was trying to I was doing all of this stuff when I started out because I was an architect and I had a small architectural practice. So I could actually take the time because I was my own boss and I could actually allocate time of my, my own time to do this kind of stuff. You won't always have that opportunity. Some people might work in a firm that's very busy. And if it is, you know, you're not going to be able to go off at lunchtime and meet the builder and things like that. So you just need to figure out what is capable, what is possible for you. So if you if you're not a passive and you're looking at um, somebody who is looking at more active stuff, the B or 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 um, strategy is a good one to look at. And the B stands for uh, buy. So you buy your property, but before you've bought it, you've already figured out what needs to be, what work needs to be done because you're going to refurbish. That's what the OR stands for. You're going to renovate or refurbish that property. And by doing that, you're going to get into all sorts of stuff, whether you replace the kitchen, whether you completely refurbish, you add a bathroom, whether you extend the house, all of this stuff is up to you. And, and then when you've done that, you can decide either to sell the property or what a lot of people do, what this, that the third OR or the second OR is, is to rent it. And you go and rent it out. You find that there are people out there who will, you know, pay you a decent amount. You've obviously got to do your your research into your into your tenant. Make sure they're people with a stable job that they're not going to be furloughed straight away. And um, because you're unable to evict anyone nowadays, not that you'd want to anyway. But the bottom line is, is you might have a bank that's expecting payments, and this kind of stuff will damage your credit rating if you have to ask them for a holiday and things like that. The last or in that is to refinance. And one of the great things about the property business is that your asset 
value can increase. And as it increases, the bank will release equity back to you. And so you can actually go back to the bank. So say you buy something for 200,000 and say through your hard work and effort, you've managed to do, you know, put in a new kitchen and you do various work and say you spend 25,000 on that property. And then the, the value of that property has grown to say 300,000. Now you've got this equity that is, has grown and your loan will actually, the bank will actually allow you to increase your loan. So you can go to the bank and you can say, look, I would like to increase my loan and get an equity release. Um, be careful what you plan to do with that equity release. When you get cash out, you can put that into your next deal. And that means you don't need to start saving up again because you actually have this money put aside. And that is a great way to just keep your capital recycling, reworking all the time doing, um, you know, make sure your capital is all the time working. One of the worst things you can do, and this is where I talk about restraint and discipline, is say, take, oh, you know, I've made 30, 35,000 profit and take that out and then just go and blow it on a fancy car or something like that. A lot of people have done that kind of thing. And back in 2005 and 2006 here in Ireland, we were a nation of, you know, complete debt addicts, myself included. And everyone was driving the latest car and it was all just borrowed straight from the bank. And nobody wanted the property to grow and just to have that extra cash there. They just wanted to take it out and, and put it into keeping up with the Joneses and making sure that you had this lifestyle that you believed, that your ego believed that you deserved. Next, we have trading. And uh, I talked about it with the B E or with the B or, or, or strategy. The last one is the refinance. But what you can actually do is just flip the property and just sell it and try to get your profit out. Now, one of the negatives of that is there's going to be taxation. If you get into a deal and you have to pay a lot of tax at the end, that is it's, it's obviously going to eat into your ability. One of the things that I used to do was actually I'd move into the property myself and I'd call it my home. And you might be living in a pretty poor, you know, uh, quality house because if you're buying it and it needs to be done up, then it's going to be in bad condition. I can show you photographs that I took of the first property that I bought and it was in a terrible state. I mean, there was water leaks and there was stains and there was all of this kind of stuff going on. And uh, it was just it just was a dismal place. But like I said, patience and discipline. I knew that this place would eventually stand me well. And so you, you suck it up, you just deal with it and uh, you live with it. And then you start the project works, you know, soon afterwards and you move back into the property. And when you move back into that property and make it your home again, any profit that you've made, you can actually just take that tax free. Now, you've got to think about given this is a global podcast and everybody is in different jurisdictions, make sure that that's the case. But certainly where I live here in Ireland, Anything that you make in residential property, if it's your own home, you don't pay any tax on any gain whatsoever. So I, I made over a million in a gain on one house and uh, and that was all in my pocket. I didn't have to pay a penny of tax because it was my principal private residence. Now, there's another thing that you can look at if you're trying to, it's a side hustle and it's in the residential thing, but it's rent to rent. Now, this is not property investment, but it is a way um, somebody's asking the question, is equity taxed? If you take an equity release out, it's not taxed. Basically, you've just grown your loan. So if, you've, if, you, get, if you extract 100,000 extra equity from the bank, that's like tax-free income. It's not income, though. You have got to go and repay that money. And what you hope to do with that 100 you take out 
is to double it or triple it in another deal and keep recycling the money. So every time you take money out, you put money into another deal and that creates more money. And um, so the next thing is I talked about rent to rent. Now, rent to rent is a good side hustle, but it's not a property investing per se. Now, what you do is you find a property that is a friend of mine has done this quite successfully. You find a property that's worth um, the guy wants maybe say 5,000 a month um, in rent for a large property. And you go and um, split that into, you know, you might have to spend a little bit of money renovating or refurbishing and repainting and doing various things. But you end up in a situation where you can maybe subdivide that uh, into nine units and you get a thousand from each unit. Suddenly you're getting 9,000. So you're you're paying 5,000 a month in rent, but you're receiving 9,000 a month from all your different tenants. Now, one of the reasons why people will do that is because when somebody uh, rents a property to one person and they, they say, look, you can pay me 5,000 a month and you can go and subdivide that and do whatever you want. They are passive in- investors who just want a simple life. They don't want to spend any money doing up the property. And what they do is they rent it to you. You'll pay them 5,000 a month. And at the end of uh, you know a couple of months, you've renovated, you've painted the place up and you can go out then and you can hopefully bring in a couple of tenants but you're taking all the risk. You still owe that guy every month 5000 and you're taking the risk that you're going to get these extra tenants in. But it is a good business if you get it at the right price and if you get the market well. Obviously, at the moment, you're going to have a lot of people if it's short-term lets. You might find that you're paying that 5000 to your friend, <laughs> to your friendly landlord, and you actually don't have the money coming in. So, you know, you do have to put some reserves aside and make sure that you're capable of doing that. But that is a good way to side hustle. So now we're getting into conversion. And um, I mean, commercial is the area that I am most excited about because it's an area that I personally have skill in and, and, I, and I work and I have a good network in it. But conversion from resi to commercial or from commercial to resi, that is something that can actually create a lot of value. Before I get into it, some questions. Um, How long do you need to live in the house for? Usually it's, I think it's like six to nine months in Ireland. Um, But obviously everybody needs to to look into that. You know, it's been a while since I did that. And so the rules are changing all the time. But the best thing is one of the things you need to do if you're going to get into this residential, uh, if you're going to get into property investment at all, is to have a team that you can rely on for this kind of advice. So what I would suggest is that you find uh, an accountant, a local accountant, somebody that isn't too expensive. Um, you can find these big guys are hugely expensive people. So I had a, a small sort of worked from home accountant and he was brilliant and he, he knew all of this stuff. And I used to just call him up. What's the story if I do this? And he'd have the answer straight away and he'd do my tax returns and it cost me very little. And you have to have a guy like that who can help you with VAT. Um, I mean, there's all sorts of things that you, there's also ways that you can shelter your tax when you're getting out of a project. And so bring an accountant all the way, all the time into the deal from the very beginning. Make sure that you're looking at how you structure this deal with the help of an accountant and also with the help of a solicitor, because the stuff, the decisions that you make at the outset can impact how it works out later on. Um, There was a project that I did a couple of years ago and it was one of my best deals that I spoke about the last time. And um, what I did was we bought this land on about one and a half acres of an old house and we, we, we took an acre of the back garden for four houses. 
And what we did at the very, very beginning before we actually closed the deal is we split up those that acre at the back into four plots. And what that meant was that the price that I got into one of those plots for my own personal home was at the original price. If I had done that later when the houses were built, I would have had to get the land priced at the market rate and it would have shot up and I would have had to have paid the company. So by doing this at the very beginning, I locked in the original price of the house. So my profit was actually in the land as opposed to the house that I built on the land. So some of this might sound confusing, but you just get a solicitor and an accountant involved nice and early and they can kind of advise you and um, you can go through the different projects. Also, it's good to get an architect on board, depending on the type of deal you're doing. If you get an architect on board, he can help you figure out what can be done with the site. Now, I'm getting kind of more into the land development there. But even if you're looking at, say, uh, B or, or, or as a strategy, if you're going to buy and you're going to refurbish your property, you need to have somebody who can help you figure out what this is going to cost. And this is what I meant by saying, Having a network is very valuable. If you have got a network of friends who are, say, a building contractor, somebody like an electrician, a plumber, um, a painter even, those are guys that can give you a very quick price and you can say, look, I want to go and um, I'm going to replace the whole door. I'm going to change the kitchen. I'm going to put new bathrooms in. I'm going to paint the whole place. I might replace, you know, um, whatever it is. You've got to price all of that before you start the job, because once you buy, you're, you're locked in now and you've got to do it. So this is something and having those prices are very useful and having an architect on board to tell you what's possible in terms of planning. That's another thing that is important. The conversion from residential to commercial. That is something that has been done many times. I bought a property. Now, that was actually a bad deal for me. I bought it at the wrong time in the market. But what we did was we bought a property that was an old residential house in the city centre. It, you know, it was like probably 150 years old. And one of the benefits of it, though, is, is that whole area had basically been gentrified and had been built up around it. And so I bought this old house and I wanted to turn it into an office building. So that was turning a residential property into a commercial property. One of the issues that we ran into straight away, and this is where I, having an architect on board for advice and stuff, we had an architect that came up with these really nice plans and we thought we were going to do a really nice office building on it. We were going to knock down the old house and we were going to build kind of five floor office. It was going to be spanking modern and we didn't realize that the local area of residents had a kind of a, a committee and they were absolutely completely against us doing anything. They wanted it just to be completely um, refurbished as it's as an old house and to go back in and just not to be touched. So we ended up spending three or four years fighting with the um, with the local residents about, well, will you let us do this? Will you let us do that? And we went in for planning a couple of times and they were turned down on us a couple of times. So you need to be careful that what you're doing is sympathetic and that you're clued in to local area. Kind of, this is one of the things by what I mean by when you're starting out, your confidence and all that won't hurt you. You'll actually do extra amount of work because you're, you're nervous of losing money. And so a lot of the stuff that you need to do is one of the things I always recommend is to buy locally initially, buy in your area, buy where you are familiar with it, you know the people, 
you know the the local associations, you know all of this stuff, you're not going to be caught out. A lot of people kind of think, oh, I'm going to buy, you know, in this place. And you might be a long way from home. You might know nobody in that town or that city. And you can get burned very easily by just not knowing that such and such a, a location has a problem or whatever. So there's a whole lot of research you got to do. You got to check the zoning. You got to check the planning. You got to check all of this stuff and make sure you have everything. So it's a super comprehensive report right from the outset. Every single possible thing has been checked that can be checked, uh, including, by the way, structural engineers to make sure that the structure of the property is right. All of this. Now, this stuff all costs money. So when you're doing a deal, you've got to kind of have a certain amount that you do by yourself. You've, you've ticked the boxes and then you start saying, OK, I'm now at a point where I don't mind I'm, I'm, I'm committed to buying this property. Now it's the time to start digging deeper into it and making sure that there's no problems behind. And I think that's where a structural engineer might come in. They might assess the structure, make sure that what you're hoping to do is possible before you commit to it. With a residential to commercial conversion, that kind of stuff is, is critical. You need to know the conditions of the adjoining properties. If you're knocking something down, the adjoining properties might have to be held back by all sorts of scaffolding and stuff. So these things can become expensive. So make sure that you're bringing a professional team on board nice and early. If you don't have that professional team, you run the risk of making just these assumptions that could come back to haunt you. And uh, so you need to be very careful. Also, um, with commercial to residential, I've seen people turning office buildings into residential buildings and that is something that is interesting. I've looked at that, you know, when an, when an old office building has passed a certain point, uh, it's, it's, it's uneconomic to actually refurbish it into being an office because certain things have changed. For example, our office buildings here, we have a certain height from floor to ceiling uh, between the concrete. Then you have a raised access floor. That's like a, a deck that you build up and you have all of your power sockets and all that running underneath. That is... Um, takes up a certain amount of space and then your ceiling above takes up a certain amount of space and you have air conditioning and all of that kind of stuff going on up above that. And if you're in an old building, a lot of that stuff wasn't a consideration back then. And so the ceilings are much tighter and the tighter they are, it means that you cannot convert it into an office, a modern day office, because it just won't. It'll be too, it'll be too low. And when you're standing in an office that's too low, it's quite claustrophobic. So you need to be careful about that. So going to residential is often the, the, the move that people will do there. And that is because low ceilings in residential is not a problem. Um, but you need to make sure that things like stairs and lifts and all of that are up to the spec for residential. And fire certificates, that's something... When you're going from an office to residential, that changes your fire safety and all that. So you need to be careful. You need to get all of these guys on board. Professional team is really, really important. Moving into commercial. Commercial property uh, is, again, you can have passive or you can have active. And I've always been active. I've never really been a passive investor when it comes to commercial uh, because I like to add the value and I like to actually see my effort turn into profit as opposed to just sitting back and letting the market rise there is if you're going to buy a passive uh, investment like a commercial property or something it's pretty simple you just do your maths and you just fight, figure out whether or not it's a good yield one of the benefits of commercial property is that you tend to have long-term leases and you tend to have um, a thing called an FRI certainly here in Ireland it might be different in other countries but FRI stands for full repair and insure 
So whereas if you rent a residential property to a tenant, the residential prop the tenant is there. If the washing machine breaks, it's your problem as the landlord. If the door stops opening or the water has a leak or whatever it is, everything just that's everything is your problem as the landlord. That's the way residential property works. Whereas with commercial property, if you have a full repairing and insuring lease, it's entirely the responsibility of the tenant. So if they have, if, if something happens to their building, if the window gets smashed, their responsibility to go and fix it. If um, there's a water leak inside the building, it's their responsibility to fix it. And you can have like a 10 year lease where the commercial tenant is just paying you four payments every year one every quarter and that's it and that's that's the extent of your involvement that's passive investing and that is a very good thing um, provided you have the money to pay because that can be an expensive enough thing to go into and that's where yields and all this kind of stuff comes into it and getting into what yields are can be difficult because it means one thing to a buyer it means another thing to a seller and it's quite a complicated so what I've actually going to do is I'm going to do a workshop on yields and valuing property and I'm going to do that completely separate to, to this. And what it's going to be is probably a Zoom call where I can actually show you my screen. So if you want to if you want to register for that, if you go to my website, gavinjgallaher.com forward slash go, you can actually put your name into the email list and I will be emailing people on my email list about the workshop. And so anyone who's watching this, yeah, just make sure that you're on that email list. If you're on my email list already, then you're on it. But if you if you haven't ever been on that website, if you never signed up to my email list, then that's important because I won't be doing this through one of these calls. Getting into value add when it comes to commercial property. This was something that was really, really lucrative for me in the past. And unfortunately, res retail is no longer the hot topic it used to be, but it's possible that uh, logistics and warehousing will be the same kind of thing. But what I did was I used to look, I call it arbitrage. You would have a retail unit that was, say, too big for the area. And this happens with builders. They would be building, say, an apartment complex and they, they're required to put retail units on the ground floor. And by putting retail on the ground floor, this is not their core skill. All they want to do is build apartments, sell them. And retail is kind of like an extra that they didn't want to do, but they've been forced by the planning planners to do. So a lot of the time what they will do is they'll just build one big unit. They don't want to go into lots of little units. They just want to find a buyer to come along and buy that big unit. And that's it. Now, this worked really, really well for me. I saw a unit in a part of town exactly fitting that description. There was I think there was 60 apartments built above. And then there was a number of units on the ground floor. And there was this huge unit, 4,800 square feet. Um, which is a big unit, is much larger than a typical retail unit uh, for kind of like a, a village centre or something. Normally they'd be kind of 800 square foot to 1,000. So by buying 4,800, the only possible occupier that's going to rent a place like that is like a carpet showroom or some sort of warehouse type operation. And in a retail unit, that's unlikely you're going to find that. So the property was for sale at a price that I think it was based off of an expected expected rent of about eight euro per foot. And um, you can do your conversions into whatever dollars, wherever in the world you're listening in from. But uh, a big unit tends to be low value per square foot or per square meter to, to rent. And if you go into a big warehouse, it can be even lower than that. But you have these... Uh, 
you have these amounts that, and that's what the value of the property is based on. So if you're getting seven euro per foot and you've got 4,700 square feet, you do your multiplication, it gives you an annual rent. And then what you do is you add a multiplier to that and that's how you get your value. And a lot of the time during a, a strong market, the multiplier might be 20 or 16. Um, but in a soft market, the multiplier might only be 10. And so what I found really worked for me was I bought this property I bought it at a multiplier of, I think, 10 on the low rent at the seven euro a foot or whatever. And I went in and I split that unit into, I think, three or four smaller units. And I think it was three units in this case. And it was one of about 1,200 square feet, one of about 800 square feet and another one that was slightly larger again. And I, I split it. And now to do that, I needed planning permission. Uh, on top of that, I needed to have, I needed to put in its own power supply. So you had one power supply feeding this one big unit. You have to get electricians in to split that into three different supplies. And also we had to dig up the floor in a few places and put in toilet outlets and stuff because uh, a tenant is going to expect that there's a, a drain popping up and that's their toilet. And there's also needs to be a, a separate water supply. So did all of that work, but that's not a lot of work. And I had a local kind of builder guy do that for me. And like maybe I spent 20,000 on it or whatever. Once that was done, I built the concrete walls up and that was it. Then I put in separate doors into each unit and that was the end of my work. When that happened, uh, then I went out and I sold the property as, uh, no, I didn't sell it. I went out and I found tenants. And what I found was that through my network, and this is where it's useful to have relationships, I was able to find that there was a an off license that was kind of a national off license company and they were mad they were expanding very quickly with their business and that what they wanted to do was to add a number of locations around the country so I reached out to them and I said I be, you know I understand you're looking for new locations I have this new location coming up would you be interested they came out had a look very interested so did a deal with them and I think I did a deal with them at 45 euro per foot. So, you know, five times the amount of rent because it was a smaller unit. It was its own whole. It was a small unit with a door, toilet, all of that kind of stuff. These guys took it, did their fit out. I didn't have to do anything about the fit out. Usually you'll give people a certain amount of rent free. So when somebody takes a unit and they have to spend substantial sum fitting it all out, you'll give them a rent free as a kind of an incentive. So they're going to be taking the unit. They might spend three months or six months completely refurbishing it, putting in new windows, everything like that. And they don't want to be paying you rent during that period of time. So it's important that you give them that rent free. And that's a period where you talk to your bank and the bank will agree that, OK, you'll al will allow you to roll up your interest for that period. But as soon as you've signed that lease and that six months of rent free is finished, you are, you know, you've seen a substantial increase in that property. So um, I did the same with the other two units and that property. So I think I paid, if I remember correctly, I think I paid 1.8, I think it was 1.8 million for that property for 4,800 square feet. And I managed to get 4.8 million from the, from renting out those three units and then selling those three units as an investment to investors who were looking for passive income from retail units. And so it was a profit of about three million in total off of a very small amount of money spent on the actual renovation. And it was just an arbitrage. It was basically just take the property at a certain value 
and convert it into a small three smaller units and then it those smaller units are able to achieve this higher rent and that's what you also do with conversions if you're looking at converting resi to commercial or commercial to resi that's the same kind of thing you can find that your floor you know a, a, an office floor in an old building might not be able to rent because it's out of date and no office uh, wants no no tenant wants to move into a kind of an out of date office because it makes their business look kind of tired and old but you might find that if you do a conversion on that and you can turn that office floor into say six apartments uh, suddenly you've got six apartments guys moving in and you can either sell those apartments or you can just keep the whole thing as an investment. It all depends on whether you've got investors and stuff. And I'll be going into that on Friday at, in, the, in the Friday uh, live call. <laughs> Buying raw land is another thing that can be very valuable. And um, what we have done in the past is buy a piece of land that has a certain type of zoning and then just get the zoning changed and, and then automatically the value of the property increases. Now, it's not always easy to do that. You've got to look at local area plans. It also helps if you're meeting with the planners, if you're listening to local council, you know, they, they'll sometimes have public meetings where you can go in and you can find out what their plans are for an area. They might be planning to put a road through an area um, of the countryside. And when that road goes through, it's going to open up that whole area to development. And if you can know in advance any of that information, it's very valuable. And um, a lot of the time what you'll do is you'll see farmers that are farming land. This happened uh, not, too not too far from where I was living. Farmers that were living on land, they had like 50 acres of land and there was cows and cattle and you know, sheep on it. And suddenly there's a road network going right through the middle of their land, which is going to convert all of their land into commercial land zoning. And... This guy got like 110 million or something like that. And he was a farmer, like he'd never earned anything more than like a farmer earns. And so he had a very normal life up until that point. And suddenly he's like hundreds of millions in value overnight. That kind of stuff can happen, but you've got to be able to do something with the land while you hold it. So there's no point in buying a load of land and then just sitting on it because it's going to cost you a lot of money and it might be 10 years before this conversion happens. So you do need to think about this kind of stuff. This is much more long term, but it can also generate massive windfall uh, profits. Uh, house building is another thing. You, you can obviously buy a site and just build houses on it. Now, that is quite a specialist area nowadays with all of the rules around residential property and stuff. But it is something that certainly we do in this in, in the business and um, and you can make some big money. Um, apartments are even more specialized. And by that, I mean, if you're going to get into buying a piece of land and putting apartments on it. Now, this is something that you, again, this is where your architects are important and having like people that understand local area plans and stuff. We have a piece of land that we bought that was right next to a, a train line. And it, uh, we bought the land and we thought to ourselves, this is going to be perfect for maybe four big houses. This is in an, a nice area where there's a lot of big houses. We thought, okay, we'll buy this land, we'll split it into four units and we'll sell each of these houses for a couple of million and it'll be a really nice project. Uh, the planners were having none of it. Because it was on a train, next to a train line, they wanted to be much, much higher density and they insisted that we build apartment building on it. And so they insisted that the density of that land had to be something like 40 euro uh, sorry 40 units to the acre 
which meant that we had to build an apartment building with, you know, close to 40 units in it. And when you get into that, you might kind of think, well, that's even better, isn't it? Well, the problem is, is that if you're a if you're building houses, what you do is you phase the houses. So when when you start a project, say a housing project, say you're building four houses, you can start building one and you can get that to a certain level before you begin the second one. And then you start with the third one and the fourth one. And so you're paying for the phasing of it. And what you are hoping to do is to actually possibly be able to sell the first house that you built before you have actually finished working on the last house. And that phasing is very, very handy for your cash flow because you can make a sale before you've actually finished out the entire project. So the the phasing of that is all very important and how you design it because somebody's going to be buying a house. Uh, they don't want to be driving through a building site to get to it. So you need to make sure that they're the ha- first house near the road and, and things of that nature. Um, when you're into apartments, the problem is, is that an apartment building has to be built fully before you can do anything with it. Every single apartment has to be finished. All of the finishes have to be in. The lifts have to be done. All of that has to be done. So you're talking about no phasing, massive, massive investment. And building 40 apartments is probably going to cost us somewhere somewhere like 20 million. So we are going to have to go and borrow 20 million from the bank to do this project in one go with no phasing at all. And we'll, we'll, we'll make a good profit off of all of the units. But it's a big, much, much bigger risk. You know, you're borrowing 20 million as opposed to maybe having to borrow 2 million to build one house and maybe sell it and then build the next house. So the problem with that is that the market, as we know about, the economy can change unexpectedly. And if you're in the middle of an apartment building and you are building something that has, you know, maybe two, two and a half years of construction time and you're 20 million in the hole, um, you can't start selling it when it's half under construction. You have to finish it completely before you can start selling it. And that is where one of the biggest problems is with doing any of those large apartment buildings. And the timing, two and a half years, who knows where the market's going to be in two and a half years. You could be in the middle of COVID-19 and you began thinking, this is going to be great. We're going to make a load of money by selling at the top of the market. I am going to be finishing up now pretty quickly. Just the analysis of the deal. When you're doing this, you you get out a sheet of paper or your um, your your spreadsheet, and you start looking at all of the different things. You've got to have your yield. You got to work out your cash flow. So you're buying the property for a certain price. You're going to have costs with that purchase. So you're going to have to pay possibly stamp duty. You're going to have to pay local taxes. Maybe you're going to have to pay your solicitor, your or your lawyer. You're going to have to pay your agent. All of this kind of stuff costs money and you got to put that in one column then what you're going to do is okay what are my renovation costs and that's where you've got to look at first of all you're going to have fees for architects and all that kind of stuff you need to be able to break down all of the prices how much is that kitchen going to cost you how much is the plumbing the electrician you know the the painting all of that you break it all down do a big schedule walk through the whole house check everything make sure your water uh, tank is good make sure your pipes are good make sure the electricity uh, system is good and that it's not need in need of replacement do all of that research and then you walk away with an idea of exactly what needs to be spent to bring this up to a certain standard you get all of that priced out you put that on the sheet so that's your purchase price and your renovation costs and if that's construction same kind of deal happens it's just it's bigger and it involves site purchase and all of the land development then you've got to go for planning there's going to be a period of time now usually you're going to the bank so it's it pays to have this pretty detailed and comprehensive so the bank don't 
you know, go to a credit committee and then banks, they are at the moment, they're particularly nervous. So you need to go to them. Any project you're going to them with needs to be very, very comprehensive. You need to have show, you, you can't have a situation where the bank ask you a question. You don't have an answer for it. So be super, super careful to do all of this work and make sure that you're not in a situation where you are being asked questions. You don't have answers. You've, that's where your architect, your team and all that, they should be able to provide you with all of the information you need to ensure that you have answers to everything. What you do then is you figure out what the end project is going to be valued at. So you say to yourself, right, we've done the work inside the building. We've uh, and now we're going to rent it. And when we rent it to somebody, they're going to pay probably based on this new refurbished building. They'll pay me this amount of rent. You'll get that information from uh, agents, brokers, uh, property agents, whatever. You go to those guys, make sure you've got one of them on your team to advise you. And they will say, right, when you're getting X amount of rent, you can have this is what you'll probably sell that property for based on the yield and stuff. And once you have that, you can basically work out what is your profit and do you have enough? It's always worth your while making sure that you're making at least 30 to 40 percent so that if you don't hit that target, you're not going to be negative. And um, once you have that, then you can sort of say, OK, so the project's going to do this. I have got so much cash. I'm going to need to borrow so much cash in order to fulfill this. So that's when you go to and you start figuring out what your banking cost is going to be. The banks will only ever lend, well, a certain amount. You'll, you'll probably get, you might be allowed to go to, you know, 30% of a deposit and borrow 70%. Usually it's not going to be much more than that. So you're going to borrow 70%. You're going to have to come up with that 30% of that total project cost. How you do that, whether you have it sitting in a savings bank or whether you're bringing partners on board, who can help you with that and you can reach that uh, threshold. And and then you got to build in your interest costs from the bank. So the bank are going to, there's going to be a cost. There's almost always an arrangement fee. So when you go to a bank and say, I want to do this, this and this, they'll say, right, well, you're going to pay 1% or maybe 2% fee on the total loan. That's upfront. You got to pay that right up front. Then you got the interest. And what they'll usually do is they'll charge you a margin on top of what the current rates are. This was behind the facade. That was, uh, I don't even remember what episode. I think this is episode nine or episode 10 of Behind the Facade. Thanks so much for listening. If you found it useful, please share this out with a friend and uh, maybe review the platform if you um, are interested. If you um, have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please comment over on the Facebook group um, or the Facebook page Behind the Facade. If you are leaving a comment, please let me know where in the world you're listening from. I just love to know how far out this uh, podcast is going. And if you're going to directly, if you want to directly participate in this kind of future Q&A, join the Facebook group Behind the Facade community. And there's a lot of these kind of live videos and um, it's, it's useful. And then lastly, my YouTube channels where all of this stuff goes and gets posted. So PropTech TV, all one word, and um, make sure you hit subscribe. And until next week, I'll see you guys very soon.